Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, Bernal University is expanding its School of Psychology and its public counseling clinic. We'll hear why there is a dire need for mental health services, not only in the communities they serve, but also throughout the state. Also, the city of Atlanta reports a 38% decrease in homelessness since 2020. But we'll check in with those who are working with advocates and those who work with resource centers on what could be behind the change and also what's still left to be done. These are important community conversations all just ahead. But first this, Wellstar Health System and United Healthcare have come together and finalized a multi-year deal starting July 1st, ending a stalemate between one of the biggest medical providers in the state and the insurance giant. All of Wellstar's clinicians, hospitals, health parks, and clinics will be in-network for United Healthcare customers with employer-sponsored individual and Medicare Advantage plans. In other news, more Georgia district attorneys say they won't prosecute, prosecute people who seek or provide abortions. At least so far, seven district attorneys have joined a group of dozens of other prosecutors throughout the U.S. in taking that position since the Supreme Court's decision overturning Roe versus Wade. We'll hear more from Jess Mador. The so-called Fair and Just Prosecution Group issued a letter against enforcing abortion bans. The group says enforcing abortion bans would erode trust in the criminal justice system, siphon resources away from prosecuting crimes that impact public safety, and further harm victims of sexual abuse, rape, incest, trafficking, and domestic violence. The letter's signatures include seven from Gwinnett, DeKalb, Chatham, Macon, Athens, Douglas, and Augusta. In a statement, Governor Brian Kemp's office says it's focused on enacting Georgia's six-week abortion law that's held up in the courts. It's asked the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals to allow the 2019 law to take effect. Action in the case is expected soon. Jess Mador, WABE News. Meanwhile, a federal court is asking for more legal briefs before deciding whether Georgia's restrictive abortion law can go into effect. While Georgians await that decision, abortion is already shaping the 2022 midterms. As we hear from WABE politics reporter Sam Greenglass. State Senator Jen Jordan, the Democratic nominee for attorney general, says the Supreme Court's decision to leave abortion policy to the states underscores the stakes of this fall's elections. And so if people are outraged, if people are scared, if people want different, then they have to vote. We have no other avenue except for people getting out voting and changing the people that are in these offices. Democrats say the ruling won't just galvanize Democratic voters. They hope emphasizing abortion rights could also sway undecided suburban voters, especially women. 
Republican analyst Martha Zoller, a veteran of several GOP campaigns and now the interim director of the Georgia Life Alliance, says she's not worried. This population of women with children are still going to care more about schools and about the economy than they are about what might happen with Roe v. Wade. 68% of Georgians oppose overturning Roe v. Wade, according to a January AJC poll. An NPR poll following the Supreme Court ruling found that a majority of Americans strongly opposed the decision. Election Day is still months away, but Representative Nakima Williams, who chairs the Georgia Democratic Party, says reproductive rights won't end up on the back burner. So this isn't an issue that will just go away because the news cycle goes away, because we're going to continue to feel the impacts of it day after day after day. Governor Brian Kemp says he wants to implement the restrictive abortion law he signed in 2019. It would ban most abortions after roughly six weeks. Kemp has signaled he's not going to call for even more restrictive legislation for now. What we're going to do and what you've seen indicated from the governor and the attorney general is they want to get the heartbeat bill in place. And then let's see what's going to happen with that before we decide to go any further. Several GOP candidates, including Republican Senate nominee Herschel Walker, are supporting total abortion bans. Sam Greenglass, WABE News. Let's talk sea turtles. It is a great summer so far for sea turtles nesting on Georgia beaches. As we hear from Molly Samuel, Georgia is a hot spot for loggerhead sea turtles. Who knew? But there were years when there were so few of them coming back, it seemed like they might disappear from our coast. The summer of 2019 had the most nests since researchers started comprehensive surveys more than 30 years ago. This summer is looking almost as good. Giant female loggerheads have hauled themselves out of the waves to dig more than 2,600 nests on Georgia beaches so far this year. Sea turtles used to drown in shrimp trawls off the coast here, but technology developed by a Georgia fisherman has made it easier for them to escape. Their biggest threats here now are from invasive wild hogs that eat their eggs, plastic in the ocean, and climate change. Molly Samuel, WABE News. Always great to report about happy sea turtles. Love those little creatures. Finally, welcome to Atlanta, the two newest players for the Atlanta Hawks. The team officially introduced rookies A.J. Griffin and Tyrese Martin Monday. Griffin from Duke University was a Hawks first round pick. Being able to be here and be a Hawk, you know, it feels great. And, you know, I'm just more excited, just so excited, you know, to get to work and, you know, get started with you guys. And Tyrese Martin from Connecticut was a Hawks second round pick. I'm just excited to get to work and just bring the toughness and the versatility and anything coach needs me to do, I'm willing to do. All right. Welcome to the Atlanta Hawks, fellas. We appreciate you. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U.
And Closer Look continues here on 90.1. WABE from Atlanta, I'm Rose Scott. According to a report published in 2021 by the nonprofit Mental Health America, also known as MHA, the state of Georgia ranks last for access to mental health care and resources. And this was also a major factor as to why Georgia House Speaker David Ralston backed that measure overhauling the state's mental health access. This is just the beginning of what I expect will be a multi-year conversation. We did not get in this place we are today overnight, and we will not get out overnight, but I can't think of a better big first step to take than this bill. Which led to April of this year when Georgia Governor Brian Kemp signed the Mental Health Parity Act, that was House Bill 1013, into law, which enforces, among other things, uh, requires parity in health coverage, which essentially means all health insurance plans are required to cover mental health conditions as they do physical ones, in addition to address the shortage of mental health providers and clinicians across the state, and also encouraging more students to work in mental health-related fields. And the bill also includes a student loan forgiveness program for mental health professionals in high-area needs. Well, today, we're going to talk about all this with Bernal University's President Anne Sclater, who joins me on the program to talk more about the state of the mental health access care here in Georgia and how the university is working to close the gap through several new initiatives. She was on a program some time ago. President Sclater, welcome back to the program. We missed you. Good afternoon, Rose. I'm delighted that I was invited back. Thank <laughs> De- you. Delighted. Be invited back. I don't know if people say I'm delighted to be back, Rose. We're glad to have you. Um, first uh-huh. of all, let's begin here. Uh, how are you all doing? I mean, I think last time we talked, we talked about the pandemic and all that. But how are you all faring now? Y'all well, thanks. back to normal, thanks so to speak? For- yeah, thanks for asking. I think it's a new normal. People are using that term. I think we're we're treating this situation right now, the setting, the, the situation is really endemic. So people are getting COVID, but they're getting it because they're mostly vaccinated. They're getting it much in a much um, less severe way. And they're able to to go home like the regular flu and come back. And we're just we're just keeping on it. We're keeping on in on the vaccinations and we're looking forward to the fall when we will be doing clinics and all kinds of things again. Speaking of mental health, I know that there's been so many reports about the toll that this pandemic COVID-19 has had on not not just students and, and faculty, but pretty much all of us. How would you say you all were able to meet, if you could, those needs for those students who were just experiencing some some yeah. serious conditions because of just not being yeah. in, in the typical, you know, university environment right. here? Well, that's a great question, Rose. I think one of the things that our faculty, and I'll talk about our faculty in the Darby School of Psychology especially, did was really double down on telehealth, telemental health. Uh, and also our faculty doubled down on making sure that in their classes on Zoom and some on Zoom, some in person, that they really focused on on how the students are doing in all parts of their lives, which is a wonderful thing we have in, in, in our faculty. So I, I would say those are some of the ways that we were able to make it through. Just by checking in. And sometimes that's all what checking that in. people needed to be asked, hey, how you doing and what do you need? Exactly. When I exactly. coming into this segment, as I played that clip from Speaker Austin, and and it's this was well documented. I don't know why it was surprising for some people that for years Georgia was ranking, if not last, last dead last, near dead last in terms of its overall mental health resources, access, all of that. This was not lost on someone like you, though. 
Well, no, I mean, I, I think one of the things that you already cited the mental health America stats and, you know, George is there at the bottom. And also the, the Department of, of uh, Community Health ranks much of the state is underserved and that is not new. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've been working on this at the university for quite some time doing multiple things uh, from multiple different approaches with multiple expertise areas to to um, fight fight uh, against this and, and and get Georgia in a better place, and especially um, the, the part of Georgia that we live in. Well, let's talk about the part of Georgia where you all, you're all in Hall County. And, and like so many other counties in this state, there are some specific demographics, some socioeconomic factors um, that tie into your community where you are. I believe you have a high percentage of Spanish-speaking population. Yes. Um, and, in, and in that community, you have um, a I won't say a high poverty level, but a significant poverty level as well. How do you see just overall the university being part of the community, connecting to the community to help meet so many different needs beyond educating your students? Yeah. And if I could, you you mentioned that we're doing a number of things. I'd love to talk about one of them first, which goes directly to your question. um, And that is by having essentially two counseling centers that are open to the public. Um, and they are for the public. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so our Burnout Center for Counseling and Psychological Services, um, we're having a direct impact in that way, Rose, because we have two in the metro Atlanta area, one in Norcross and one in Gainesville. Um, and they're outpatient. We have individual, family, couples, children, um, group therapy, assessment. And that is at a sliding scale and sometimes at no cost based on the needs of the particular individual. And that's my next question, because all those services that you mentioned, which obviously are needed, often people cannot get because they're either un- uninsured, or, uninsured under, or underinsured. But you all are able to meet the needs of folks kind of where they are in terms of their financial situation. We're doing the absolute best we can. And one of the ways we can do that, Rose, is we have graduate students in our clinical counseling program who are supervised by professors who can then have a lot more of a caseload, a higher caseload than a, than a typical professional. And they get such great experience from it. So one of the things we're doing in our Darby School of Psychology and Adolescent Counseling is to put out more of those clinical counseling psychologists and start a doctoral program so that we have people to teach those who need to be out there doing this. So we're able to build capacity to to provide uh, access to high quality mental health because of our students and our faculty fanning out uh, in, in, in these two counseling centers that's just for the and that's just for the public largely. Well, and let's stick with that for a moment because I also imagine then you also have the staff there or bilingual. They have to yes. be. Yes. Yes, we have bilingual staff. That's an excellent point. Super important. And also, if you can, uh, President Sclater, what are some of the, I guess, specific resources that folks needed? Was it in terms of just access to a counselor? Um, was there any other mental conditions that might be related to other? physical or mental conditions? Can you sort of, for our listeners, take a deeper dive into what you all were offering or what you all felt was a need for? Sure. Well, if we're talking specifically with our counseling center, it really is anything that that individual needs, whether we can provide it at the counseling center or whether we need to make that connection for that person with another agency, we will do that too. But 
you know, you can imagine, Rose, depression, mm -hmm. anxiety, um, those with learning disabilities, we needed to do a lot of assessments because if you're already having challenges in how you learn and how the school teach and you're now on zoom <laughs> you could only imagine what that was like for the for the pandemic but it's a problem all the time so those assessments are super important because people are waiting months and months and months for those mm. when they don't have another place to go do you all also offer in terms of for those who can't come in and i know that with telemedicine was so important mm -hmm. during the pandemic yeah. was that an option and particularly for maybe yes. some of your older population or populations folks who have mobility issues were you all able to to have that access virtually there was yes there was a time when rose that's all we were able to do or and and you know it's a lot <laughs> it's much better than not having the, the 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 therapy and not having the support um but we still do telemental health um when it's necessary both for our students and for the community do you all here's another question which i know you'll 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 love personnel i mean how do you make sure yeah. ensure that you will have enough personnel to meet the demands of from the community this is just for your public do you have yes. enough? Are you all able to keep folks staffed? Uh, const constantly looking to grow and that grow in that. And that's why we are growing our Darby School and to produce more students who can do that first level treatment and be supervised. And we're going to have to grow the number of faculty. We have a plan to do that as well in, in our Darby School. Well, with that plan, and this is something that you're no stranger to, means more funding, here comes the budget question, which all presidents, <laughs> CEOs, executive directors love to get. You, how are you yeah. all able to do this? Where is this money yeah. coming from? Well, one of the things we were we were really delighted. So this is like the second thing we're doing, which is expanding the Darby School, um, is that we were we did get a generous gift from um, Doug and Kay Ivester to be able to move into the the new downtown Gainesville Renaissance um, and put all of our psychologists together on in, in, in one floor of this building. And that's been great. And what, what that's an, enabling us to do is build a a stepping stone framework for growth over time. And we've also had some other donors who have been very generous to us, foundations and, and private giving, and our, our trustees have given as well significantly to growing the, the Darby School. They see the need um, in their families. They see the need in the community. Uh, we need more. We need more gifts. We need more ways to support. And hopefully um, we'll be able to also take advantage of some of the funding that's out there. I want to shift for a moment and focus on sure. you because this is in your wheelhouse, as folks say. I mean, your bachelor's degree in psychology from Pittsburgh and then a master's and PhD in social and organizational psychology from Temple University, as well as a management program at Harvard University. This is in your wheelhouse. So as a person helping to lead these efforts, this is also personal for you as well. Thank you for knowing my resume. That's what I do, President. That's um, what you do. Um, yeah. So from my social organizational hat, what I'm thinking about always is how are we going to be partnering with others to meet the needs of our community? And that's kind of those are two important nodes. And the third thing we're doing really fits with partnership. And I'd love to talk about that. But but it's the partnering together with other organizations and mobilizing our faculty and staff to meet the needs of, of the community. And I have to tell you, people, when we talk to them about the need for mental high quality, access to high quality mental health care, they they just, they, they get it because they have people in their families and people in their lives and cousins and nie nieces and grandkids. And they understand that this is 
um, that this is a huge problem that we have to bind together to 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 solve. So that's kind of the organizational piece and mm-hmm. and um, and the psych- you know psych- psychological piece is if we don't attack this issue right now um, with young people, which is why. Yeah, adolescent psychology is so important. Mm-hmm. Then we we're we're just gonna we're just gonna reap the negatives for generations. We've got to uh, attend to the young people. The voice you hear is Brunel University President Ann Sclater, and we're talking about the state of the mental health access, not only for her community up there in Hall County, but overall here in Georgia and how the university is working to close the gap through several new initiatives. Well, this is one that's very interesting too, because you also are also working with law enforcement here. We, we are, we are, and we're so grateful. Um, having mental health clinicians embedded with law enforcement, um, I think, we think is the future, um, and we're excited to be part of that. Um, we really give great thanks to the chief in Gainesville, uh, Jay Paris, a good friend and, and a wonderful member of the community, who said, bring it on, you know, give us mental health professionals and we will utilize them to the fullest. So. We had an alumna, Anjana uh, Freeman, who mm-hmm. was hired as the first ever mental health clinician. Um, and now we have a whole series of, of graduates from a, from Bernal's program in Therapy School who are going into, um, a, a, into that pipeline so that there is always somebody there um, to attend to the needs of somebody suffering with some, from some mental um, a health crisis or an interpersonal violence situation, which mm-hmm. involves somebody who really needs help. Um, and that's what they need. And they need that person with them. So again, working in partnership to solve, help solve a community matter. We're, we're delighted to work with the, the police. You mentioned that some of your counselors are, are graduate students in your clinical counseling psychology program. And, and I'm curious in terms of for them as well, you have your faculty that also is sort of the resources for them. What do you tell, do you all have to have a certain initiative or a certain strategy to try to get more students to work in this, in the counseling centers, or are you going to require it as part of their, their graduate studies as part of almost like, you know, not an internship, but it's their clinicals, like the labs. This is actual work that you need to be doing. Excellent point, because the last thing I was going to say is there can't be better experience for these students than the real the real world. And they are it is part of the curriculum. It is hardwired into the curriculum to serve the community and be supervised in serving that community and process all of that so that you can't graduate without having talked to somebody who is in a different racial category, ethnic category, perspective, background, international, you need, that is, needs to be part of the education of the student because they're going to go out there into a world where they mm-hmm. need to serve everyone. Um, and so it is hardwired into the curriculum and we don't have to, we don't have to try hard because these are people who really want to help others. It's been said so many times, cause I know you've read it and I've read it and I've heard it that the pandemic has highlighted or pull back the curtain or amplified or, or, you know, shown a light on all these health disparities and inequities that have existed for such a long time. Again, I don't know why I was shocking to some people don't know where they've been, but I've also heard folks say, look, if we don't take this opportunity now to learn because of the pandemic and to as best as this nation can, whether it's legislation or policy or funding, to get a hold of this so we can provide mental, not just provide also, President, but be able to diagnose and recognize, because all this is tied to, as you know, gun violence and other 
issues in our society. So I just kind of want to get your thoughts on why, why this is the time now to really focus on this. If we've never done it before in this nation, yeah. now's the time. Yeah, I, I think you're right. All of those terms have been used, but I think, but the bottom line is, is we now know. <laughs> we now know these statistics. I mean, one of the statistics I didn't mention is that there are 4.9 psychologists in the county of Hall, where Bernal is, for 10,000 children. Hmm. 4.9, which isn't even five human beings. So we now know these statistics. We know the CDC report. We know what's going on with the with the um, Mental Health America stat. We know these things. We can't unknow them. And it looks like there's will, based on the legislation you mentioned, it looks like there's will to put resources toward it. And resources aren't just, you know, clumps of money. Mm -hmm. It has to be producing more practitioners to help to help people. It has to be creating awareness. It has to be all kinds of things. And this is the time. After this program, after this segment, we're going to talk about efforts to dec still decrease homelessness in the Atlanta region. And it always goes back to whenever I have these types of conversations, how do we then gauge success or, how, or what are the metrics used to determine how effective an initiative or approach was for you all at Bernal University? What does that in, it look like? What would you like to see? And it's not going to happen overnight, obviously. Yeah, yeah. I'd love to see no waiting lists ever for an appointment. I'd love to see anybody who needs to get an appointment gets one within a week. You know, I, I would love to see the those who are that come through our uh, psychological services center um, or our Darby school. I, I'd, I'd love to see uh, treatment. I'd love to see them want to come back and serve and get into the, into the mental health arena and help increase access. Um, I, I would love to see people just providing um, a lot more philanthropy in the area and saying, this is where I want to put my legacy by giving uh, of my, you know, of my um, uh, largesse to those who really need help and or, and those who are building systems that will last. I, I, those would be some success measures for me. And do you come back and start looking at this in six months, a year from now, two years? What's the timeline that you think I, is I think we, Yeah, that's a great question. I think we look at it constantly, but definitely at least annually. The university has called this in terms of the two counseling clinics that are open to the public, a, a win for the students and the community as we wrap up. Is that how you feel about this as well? I, I would like to believe that that's the case. Um, I think there is no better there's no better classroom than actually doing the work and, and, and then getting the feedback about that work and meeting with the people face to face uh, or face to face mediated. Um, and then secondly, um, I, I believe that it is part of what we are doing here at Bernal. Um, it's not everything that we're doing and it'll never be enough. We have to keep finding a way to grow. Uh, and that's what I tell our faculty and staff uh, that that's what we have to do. We have to keep finding ways to, to, uh, to grow, to provide high quality, access to high quality mental health. Um, it, it's not just about, it's not just about having somebody there. It's about somebody who really knows what they're doing. Let me ask you, how have you been faring through all this? What's been your approach to making sure your mental health, and I've asked so many, you know, presidents of universities and colleges this, because you all we're spearheading and leading, you know, with your executive team. I mean, through something that was no, again, no handbook for 
Dear no, President, <laughs> this is how you deal with a pandemic for an institution. How have you been getting through all this? Well, that's a that's a very nice of you to ask that question. I would say two ways. One is our, our team, our, our leadership team, our executive team, and our faculty and staff just have been absolutely fantastic. Just putting their arms around each other and our students, and that they have lifted me up. Number two is I do talk to other presidents because yeah. you know we're in a situ we're, we're in a situation where we don't really have a colleague who's doing exactly what we're doing at the institution. None of us do, so um, we talk a lot. We have a lot of groups that um, continue to talk uh, routinely about what's going on and help each other. And was there anything that you learned personally about your leadership style because you were in this unprecedented, you know, situation <laughs> here that you're willing to I admit? Le <laughs> I learned a lot, Rose. But I'll, the one thing I'll say is I learned that I really like face to face. I really am not a home worker. I'm really not a I really like to work at the office on the campus with the students. Um, that is my preferred style, but it's like your right and left hand. I have to shore up the left hand mm -hmm. because we didn't have that opportunity. So um, that was a challenge for me. Uh, I know that that's the, that's my style is face to face personal. In the words of my friend who has a, a second grader during the pandemic and he said, uh, no more Zooms. That's right. <laughs> um, I like it. <laughs> and finally, you are Bernal's 10th president. You know, I got to ask you this. Uh, how much longer do you think you want to? Oh, my goodness. As long as they'll have me, Rose. It's the best <laughs> job in the world at the best place in the world. That'll get it. <laughs> <laughs> Madam President, thank you so much for taking the time from Bernal University and Sclater. Thank you so much. Thank you for what you're all doing for that community up there. And uh, come on back. I would love to. And thank you for having me. And you have just a wonderful day. You too. Thanks for all you do, Rose. Thank you. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. As always, I'm Rose Scott. Recently, Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens, flanked by advocates and others working within organizations to help the city's homeless, gathered to announce this. I have directed the allocation of $6.2 million of the city's American Rescue Plan funds to go to work on behalf of those experiencing homelessness. And this was also around the time where recent data from the city indicating the results of a survey suggests there are fewer homeless people in the city than before the pandemic. Still, often those experiencing homelessness require additional what we call wraparound services. So, again, the question is, what's the holistic approaches? What, what are the holistic approaches needed? Well, we're going to talk about that. Joining me now is Melanie Gaston, Social Services Director for Atlanta's Children's Shelter, Raphael Hollowell. Holloway, CEO of Gateway Center, and Barry Dupree, who will share his story of being unsheltered to now living independently. Welcome to you all. Thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having us. Melanie, let me start with you. What do you think is probably some of the biggest, I guess, misconceptions about folks who are unsheltered or who, who are homeless? I think probably the biggest misconception is that that's where they want to be. 
And that's not always the case. We know that sometimes there's family violence, there is loss of employment, there's relocation, there's a, a lot of things that causes homelessness. So I think probably the biggest misconception is they want to be there or they cause themselves to be there. Raphael, what do you think? I would agree. I, I would just add that oftentimes people want to know who um, is homeless or experiencing homelessness. And I think the reality is that homelessness can impact anyone, um, especially now when we look at what's happening with um, the employment market, uh, the inflation, the housing affordability. We are seeing people who are experiencing homelessness for the first time. And for those that have been chronically homeless, it's becoming more difficult for them to exit that current condition. Barry, what do you think? Well, I was reading an article. Uh, they were saying it's over 3.5 million people in America are homeless. Mm -hmm. And that's not due to drugs and alcohol. That's uh, due to people losing their jobs. That's what we have. And, you know, people do have a tendency to get accustomed to homelessness. See, I was homeless. Mm -hmm. So I know what homeless is, what it means. Uh, you can get adapted to it, mm -hmm. but with an organization like Gateway, with the staff and organization that they provide for us, mm -hmm. you learn a better way of living life, mm -hmm. a better way of understanding that you can't have peace, joy, and happiness. But the number one key to me is to give anybody is that you got to want it first. First, mm -hmm. you got to want it. Because uh, the people out here are giving you the opportunity to become you. But if you don't have the want to in you, it's not going to happen. And it's going to continue and continue on. And that's the biggest part that I found being in Gateway 18 months, that people came in, the success story is low, but it is success story time. Mm -hmm. You know, some people want it. I wanted it. Yeah. And we're going to hear more about Barry's story in just a moment. I want to go back to Raphael for a moment because when Barry talked about he wanted it, he wanted to help. But then there are also situations where folks just may not be at the capacity to even understand that they want or need the help because of some other conditions. And, and I want to, Rafi, I'm coming to you because at the Gateway Center and I've been down there and I have profiled you all. Is that the first point of intake for you all is having to assess what folks need and how challenging is that? It can be very challenging, Rose. I think one of the things that we train and talk with our team about is the fact that it's, it's that, Oftentimes the people that we're engaging with, they're service fatigued. They have tried, they have waited and not been successful, oftentimes not because of their own efforts. And so it's a lot of trust building mm -hmm. that takes place in that intake process or that building relationship before we ever get to an intake. It starts with outreach oftentimes, not just with Gateway providing outreach, but a number of other collaborative partners providing outreach. And then yes, Gateway provides coordinated entry. We're one of the largest uh, coordinated entry service providers that for when people say, yes, I am ready, I trust you to try this process again, we are able to quickly get people linked when there's shelter beds available to beds at Gateway or to other providers in community. But it really 
begins with understanding and being empathetic to the person's journey to even getting to the point to ask for help, mm -hmm. but also then building the trust and maintaining that trust through the process. Raphael, let me just stay with you for a moment before I move on to Melanie, because you all primarily serve men. Yes, we have 500 beds of what I call what we call short term residential. We're not necessarily fans of the term shelter mm -hmm. um, because we're trying to provide all these additional wraparound supports um, other than just a bed for people to live. So, yes, we have about 500 beds. Uh, 475 of those beds are for men and about 25 are for women and children. Mm. Melanie, let me come over to you. Raphael talked about for so many folks, often they are what he called services fatigued. You can understand that terminology and what it Ab means? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think one of the biggest things, too, in addition to uh, what Raphael said, it's like trust. Uh, our participants have been through so much and they've been rejected so often. Uh, it's just difficult for them to trust and to understand that we're here to meet you where you are, to help you to move to you know a different place in life. So, yeah, I can completely understand that. And for our listeners not familiar with your organization for Atlanta's Children's Shelter and full disclosure, I've, I've moderated several conversations for you all with the work that you all do. Who primarily, and I think it might say it in, your, in the name, but who do you all primarily work with? So we primarily work with women and children, but we'll work with men as well. But 95% of our uh, client, clients are women and with how, children. And are they, do they just come through the doors? Are they referred? So generally they are referred from other shelters, other uh, emergency and transitional housing, gateway, uh, hospitals, churches, just throughout the community. And how many beds or how many rooms do you all have? So we have we don't we don't have beds. No mm -hmm. one resides here. Mm -hmm. We are more of a day shelter. We provide a supportive services and we have a early childhood education component where we provide uh, child care for the children while the parents are either looking for employment, going to school, working, or on some sort of job training. Yeah. But you all had recently announced an initiative to where you want to get into housing in terms of being able to help families move into permanent housing. That's an initiative that's sort of new to you all, but you've been working on that, right? It is new, but we have actually acquired three properties where we will house uh, clients for up to a year and we will cover all the costs. They could either be working, going to school or in some sort of job training. Mm -hmm. And we are hopeful that, that at the end of that year, they will have saved, uh, cleared up any debts that they might have and able to rent on their own, some affordable housing. I wanna go back to Barry Dupree for a moment. Barry, can you share in terms of what you feel comfortable sharing, what led you to experiencing homelessness and whatever you feel comfortable in sharing. I feel comfortable sharing uh, the truth. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm 63 years old. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I've been in drug addiction over 40 years. Okay? I have a uh, born in Atlanta, Georgia. My mom raised me in the church. Uh, I have five sons by one woman. Uh, my 19-year-old got killed about nine years ago. Mm -hmm. And that's what drew me more on the streets. My mom didn't want me around 
you know, I had to sleep in abandoned houses and abandoned cars. One time I woke up and had a car and a possum was in the car. You know, I'm scared of animals. But that's the uh, lifestyle that the drug drove me to. And one day I was uh, looking up in the sky waiting on a man to run me some drugs and I saw an image of my son named Joshua in heaven. He told me to get it together. So I went in, stopped smoking, got my head together. Then that that was that Friday, that Monday I was in Gateway Line. Somebody had told me about Gateway. I had searched out the other places, but I had remember my brother had went to Gateway. And I got in the line and when I first got here, the lady said, uh, you have to be seven days clean. I told her I wasn't gonna I was gonna have, I told her I wasn't gonna make it. Mm. So she called this man named down, Mr. Demetrius Hester. This man talked to me like no other man ever talked to me. And allowed me in uh the upward program. And this man was amazing. He was hardcore like a sergeant. And he taught me that rough side. Then a little while later, my lifesaver came in. His name is Mr. Jonathan Wells. Mr. Wells taught me the ins and out uh, drugs and alcohol, what it do, how long you got to do it. I was interested in it. I wanted to, uh, I wanted my life back. Mm-hmm. And I just moved on from that, and then once I started in the program, I wound up finding out that my whole body tore. I had to have two hernia surgeries. I had to have a hip replacement. So I got all my teeth removed, and I can smile. <laughs> and uh, I just started moving on from there. I saw Mr. I met Mr. Raphael mm-hmm. at a dinner at a table. Now, this is my first, and remember now, I'm coming from the streets, homeless, mm-hmm. bomb, folks look at me like, look at that bomb right there. Mm-hmm. And here I am sitting at the table with a CEO of Gateway. Yeah. I don't know why I told him that, but I came up and told Mr. Raphael I was going to be Gateway poster child. Mm-hmm. So I put my life I listened to my counselors. I did what they told me to do. I got on my hands and knees and I prayed and took it off my hands and gave it to God. I started a GD class. I won a certificate for uh, Toastmasters to be a motivational speaker. Mm-hmm. Uh, an organization named Archer came down here to talk. They put me on YouTube. Uh, now, I'm on a life journey to help someone just like me mm-hmm. to have that peace, joy, and happiness in their life that I never knew existed. I knew it existed, but the drug was my altering. It when you know, the decisions I was making was in the dumps. Mm-hmm. Now today, I'm... <sighs> Being interviewed by you, Miss Ross. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I met the governor. 
today. Because mm. I had to go to another engagement at 10 o'clock. I had to leave early because they said it was supposed to end at 1. But I met the governor, mm -hmm. gave a new computer. Now, my story is not unique. Mm -hmm. My story is powerful because I overcame all the obstacles that I had to, thanks to the organization that they call Gateway and the Upward Program. If I had the power and the money, I would open up more gateways and more Upward Programs. See, I married my recovery. Mm. I married gotcha. it on my first year. Let's talk about that. Because Raphael and Melanie, you heard Barry Dupree say, look, if I could, I'd open up a whole lot of gateways. When we hear that the Andre Dickens administration is pledging this money toward these efforts, uh, Raphael, what is your hope in terms of what that looks like? You know, I know that there's a, a process here, but as we always hear, having more money is great, but you got to have a plan and you got to make sure you're funding the appropriate initiatives and programs that work from a holistic standpoint. So what do you hope oh, comes I, out of this? Absolutely. Uh, first, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't acknowledge Partners for Home, who leads the Atlanta Continuum's strategic efforts. And they set a plan back in 2016, I believe is the year. And <clears throat> the first step in that plan was expanding coordinated entry, which they did. Then there was an opportunity uh, to make an investment around our outreach programs and actually added a additional sheltering programs. And they did that in 2017. Then with COVID in 2020, part of a perfect storm on that team was an additional investment of emergency dollars that came in that not only allowed us to open what we call the quarantine hotel, but then we opened a hotel in partnership as a community, private-public partnership that allowed for people to have another housing option. Mm -hmm. And when I say that, it, it ties back to the service fatigue. It was a, the hotel itself provided a different way of sheltering because individuals had their individual rooms, their own showers, and it just provides a level of dignity um, having your own private space, the ability to close a door behind you. So with Mayor Dickens and the new dollars that have been allocated, what excites me is the possibility of replicating what has worked. What has worked has been utilizing hotel partnerships as a way of an alternative shelter. Those that have been service resistant, service fatigue, have through the coordinated outreach efforts agreed to being sheltered temporarily at these facilities where in the past they might not want to come to a gateway or other facilities. Mm -hmm. But the key has been the rapid rehousing and housing navigation component mm -hmm. through working with an organization called Open Doors. Open Doors has bridged gaps with the apartment community and landlords to say, hey, join us in this fight mm -hmm. and explain what the fight is, what role they can play, but more importantly, how they would be supported and dispelling myths associated with providing housing to our former guests. Because of that, the original lift program during the pandemic housed almost 800 individuals that went through the hotel, but an additional 400 plus individuals that were on what is called the housing queue or mm -hmm. the wait list to be matched with housing resources. 
So that 1,100 individuals being, or households, I shouldn't say individuals, mm -hmm. but that those 1,100 households being placed played a significant role in our ability to reduce our homeless count. It is our hope that through these new dollars that we can replicate some of those efforts, potentially expanding and identifying a hotel sheltering option, continuing to expand our rapid rehousing, but most importantly, building partnerships with, with other entities, more especially uh, apartment communities, that we can create affordable housing options for our guests to transition out of being unhoused. Melanie, I, I want you to answer that question as well in terms of what does this now look like through your lens in terms of with this funding and how the city can move forward. And then after that, I want to get into something, Raphael, you just mentioned because it, it triggered something to me when you said dispel the myths about the housing. So we're going to get into that in a minute. But Melanie, go ahead. I, I think that it looks like housing for the homeless. I think uh Definitely homeless is a housing problem. I, I definitely believe that we can address homelessness by housing our clients first and then working with them to get better, to do the things that they need to do to get them employment, to get them educated, you know, to get them trained to, be, to do better and be better. I think homelessness is definitely a housing problem, okay. point blank. So it looks like affordable housing to me. Yeah. All right. So let's get into this then, because Melanie, I'll stick with you uh, for a moment. Raphael talked about also dispelling these these housing myths that people have, and sometimes you've, we've heard we've heard from opposition neighbors, yeah. residents saying perhaps not in this neighborhood. They, you know, perhaps think it should be in another neighborhood. How do we get, how do we bring everybody to the table and, and and it's and one could argue perhaps folks have a legitimate and valid concerns but others will say listen if we have a facility there we're going to make sure that there won't be any quote unquote problems for the neighborhood what's your take on all that and that whole line of conversation regarding that with our new housing initiative we had so much backlash when we explained what we what we were doing and what we wanted to do. We initially started with going to a lot of the apartment complexes in the area. And when they heard who we were, the population that we served, they were just not on board at all. So we just gotta be diligent about letting the public know what homelessness is. It's just not one of those sexy things. So people don't really, you know, pay a lot of attention to it, or they just look at television and they see that, you know, some of the stereotypes of drugs and alcohol, you know, are associated with homelessness. We need to let them know the population that we serve. We have about three ladies right now with master's degrees in our program mm. that, that, you know, fled domestic violence. So it's just so different. So we just got to be diligent and dispelling, you know, what they think homelessness is. And that's it. <laughs> Raphael, how do you so, navigate through that conversation when residents or someone, neighbors to, for perhaps a building or a facility or even where you all are business owners that say, you know what, I wish Gateway wasn't here? Absolutely. I think the first thing when it comes to housing, I try to level the playing ground with the conversation about do we agree that housing is a right versus a privilege? And if we can start there that we understand that it's a right to be housed, then we can have a conversation about what it looks like. Again, a better understanding of who is coming to your facility. Everyone does not have substance abuse issues. Everyone does not 
have severe mental health issues, but should they? We provide a number of supports that are other social service providers that before these individuals are placed, we are connecting them to resources and services. But should that deny them the right to housing? And the answer is no. And then the other piece to that is we're not talking about concentrating poverty, which is what a lot of times what people mentally turn to. Mm -hmm. it's, we're talking about getting people placed in the communities where they can thrive, where they can contribute, but they can also uh, uh receive some of the benefits of that is a community that has seen an investment in a community that is flourishing that they can contribute but also gain from being a part of it and third i think for most of the landlords that are new to us that have mm -hmm. not worked with our clientele they have been impressed with one obviously um if it's a subsidy associated they enjoy getting paid on time like most landlords mm -hmm. um but we had we find ways for them to volunteer and get engaged because the vision of your resident shouldn't be the same as the person that you might see in the encampment. We're, we're showing that there's a transformation that takes place from outreach to being housed in a short-term residential facility, AKA shelter, to when they come to your door. And a lot of people have not had an opportunity, like you Rose, when you've come down and been able to see people in a different element, most people are making that assumption based off what they see on the street, not seeing people going through their stages of change. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Barry, I got just about a minute left. I want to give you the last word. What is your message for folks who may not understand the plight of those who are unsheltered or who are experiencing homelessness? What do you want to say to them? That I know it's a bad look at the poverty and the people that's in it. But out of that handful of that group, if you can take a portion of that group mm -hmm. and put them in a helpful situation to teach them a better way of living, a better way of helping people and bring the people that's looking that's outside trying to look in mm -hmm. and that setting to see let them see the progress of these people i think it will be more people on board to do that see the program that i got housing and i'm i'm in Clarkson step up program mm -hmm. i'm in Clarkson. Now, drugs still everywhere, but I'm in a setting that where I don't have to walk up my door and the dope man right there, you know. And if more people that have those type of housing apartments available could just say, hey, help one, mm -hmm. teach one, it'll be a whole better world. It'll be less homelessness, chaos, and what. It, it's all about love to me. Mm. Gateway gave me a chance. Mm. Gateway gave me my life back. That's a good way to... And when you got a person that get, they get a chance, they might make it. Yeah. Oh, so I'm going to fall. But the ones that don't fall, you know all what I right. mean? That's a good way to end this conversation. Barry Dupree, who shared his story of being unsheltered to now living independently. 
also joined by Melanie Gaston, Social Service Director for Atlanta's Children's Shelter, Raphael Holloway, CEO of Gateway Center. Thank you all for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you all. Thank you and that's it for this edition of closer look our producers are janine etter lashawn hudson and daniel Razel. our intern is lennox johnson our engineer kevin rinker reminder let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other send me an email rose at wabe.org and of course if you missed any of today's program it's always online just go to wabe.org slash closer look and of course closer look weeknights at 7 p.m as well as in our podcast so subscribe to closer look wherever you like stay tuned to 90.1 wabe atlanta i'm rose scott Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.